One of the annoying things about the analysis of lockdowns for me, which kind of infuriated me in the first year back in 2020, when I guess we were first discussing them, was the fact that people only talked about GDP. You know, that that, that was the only cost of lockdowns, which is incredibly narrow and stupid uh, view of human nature and human interaction. I mean, all the things that are good in life are not in GDP. <laughs> I mean, you know, the happiness and joy with friends, being with relatives, none of that's in GDP. Right? It doesn't show up in GDP. And yet all of those things were stopped, right? They was all stopped as if they had no value. And you had these, you know, pathetic economists in my view, I won't name names, you know, basically doing these stupid little models about whether a lockdown was logical or not, or you passed a cost benefit analysis just based on what it did to GDP. I mean, what sort of strange upbringing in childhood or, or you know, or history does, does one have to have not to realize that all the good things in life are pretty much not in GDP. Welcome to the New Flesh Podcast, the podcast you deserve. My name is Ricky Orpike, and I'm joined by the magnificent Jonathan Astro. How are you? Uh, Ricky, I'm I am well, uh, however, a bit chagrined uh, because... Do you like good sound in general when you listen to podcasts? Yes, I'm partial to some good sound, yeah. You like some good sound? I do. Well, I, I do. like it too. And I thought, you know, we would, you know, try and get good sound. And so we got this new program... And we used it with this interview we're about to 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 play for people with Adam Crichton, and uh, I had clicked the wrong. I blew it. Okay, so my sound's not good, and so everyone just needs. <laughs> you blew it. I did blow it, and you just need to deal with it. And don't worry about me. I apologise. We're onto it now. It was it won't happen again. All right. <laughs> yes, you blew it. We're very disappointed in you. <laughs> but anyway, who cares about that? Adam uh, Graydon is fantastic, and that's all that matters. So let's 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 talk to someone who knows something. Yes, on with the show. Adam Graydon is a journalist and the Washington correspondent for the Australian, where he was previously the economics editor. Uh, Adam's also written for the Wall Street Journal and the Economist. He holds a Bachelor of Economics from the University of New South Wales and a Master of Philosophy in Economics from Balliol College, Oxford, where he was a Commonwealth Scholar. He's received several awards for his journalism and writing, and we're thrilled to have him uh, join us on The New Flesh. Adam, welcome. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me. So in this era of fake news, I thought I'd ask you sort of a control question to gauge your ability to tell the truth to your audience. So what do you think of the coffee in the United States? <laughs> it's incredibly overpriced and not great. And I mean, it's true, it's a cliche, but it, but it really is something that, that Australia is very good at, I must say. And I do miss, it's one of the things I miss about, about home. Uh, kind of even during the lockdown madness, it would have been nice to have a, a good coffee. But it's extraordinary in Washington that you cannot get a, a flat white equivalent for less than five US dollars. Right. So what's that? Seven dollars fifty Australian? It's absurd. Even in Sydney, in Potts Point, where I live, you get a nice flat white for three dollars thirty Australian. Well, well, we'll move on from this coffee in a second, but I have to get more. And I have to get more on on this because a couple of things. When I was there, look, I, I'm obsessed with, with America. I love America, obviously. Uh, and uh, but no American I ever met ever believed that we were better at coffee than them. That that was one thing. They never believed. They were always hundred percent sure. No, no. And I'm like, no, no, no. That thing in the pot that black water you've got that's not coffee yeah look that's right i think the fact that so many australian companies have entered the u.s market and kind of trade on australia's uh, supposed superiority at making coffee has has convinced americans of that i mean i think what is it bluestone cafe being the most prominent i mean that's become a massive company over here but there's lots of other little ones too in new york i did a story about about it i think about a year ago i uh, just interviewed a few australian uh kind of coffee makers baristas in new york and yeah they're everywhere Mm. Well, we'll get to lockdowns in the economy shortly, but we wanted to get your views on the big news out of Silicon Valley 
uh, the Elon Musk buyout of Twitter. So the green left elite see Elon Musk's car as the savior of the world and his purchase of Twitter as the end of the world. Will these two events uh, even themselves out, do you think? Well, look, I think it's a, you know, it's a fantastic story. It's you know, probably the big media story of the last five years, I guess. Uh, and look, it's worth pointing out it hasn't happened yet. I saw some chatter overnight, uh, some questions being asked about whether he's losing interest at all because he's criticising the company and apparently he's not supposed to do that as, as, part of the, as part of the agreement. But assuming that's all false and it goes ahead, uh, yeah, it's extraordinary. Um, I mean, I don't think, it's, I don't think life is going to change anywhere near as much as, as uh, some of his... Uh, detractors and critics would, you know, would think it will. Uh, I mean, he's going to tweak the algorithm. He's going to make a few changes as any new owner would. He's probably going to let some people back on Twitter who've been banned. But in the big scheme of things, that's, you know, it's really not going to change a lot. And I mean, you guys use Twitter. If you don't, if you don't like someone, you don't have to follow them. You know, you can block them. So it's not like, you know, people can, you know, say abusive, horrible things to others if they, you know, if they don't want that to happen in the first place. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's symptomatic of the state of mainstream media that it's created so much anger, that it's that's fueled so much anger in you know the CNNs and the MSNBCs of the world are just furious about this because I think they they know uh, that they did have censorship power on that platform, uh, just like they do on Facebook and Google, uh, to snuff out uh, views that that uh, don't accord with their various parties, and that's going to go away according to what Musk says. Well, while you're while we're on that, you know, more broadly, Russia Gate, Biden laptop, you know, democracy dies in darkness. Now we've got yes. CNN Plus uh, uh, tanking after ten thousand subscribers. So, what what the hell is going on with journalism? Look, it's a very good question. I'm actually mulling a column or a, or a feature on this on this very question in the next few weeks because it's really struck me in the last few weeks, especially with the Hunter Biden laptop uh, suppression by the mainstream media here. And then, the, you know, very slowly coming around to admitting, oh, actually, you know, in the 25th part of a feature, you know, it was correct. Uh, I and mean, that's pretty extraordinary stuff. And that and that follows on from the Steele dossier, of course, which was complete rubbish. And yet it was pushed as, as truth. Uh, and, you know, that combined with the silencing of all these voices about lockdown and vaccines and so forth, where, and all these people have largely been, been proved correct, uh, that sadly, I think... Uh, media is is kind of shrinking back, if you like, to to how it started 100 years ago, which is uh, extremely partisan, essentially propaganda for one side of politics or the other. And you know, it's it's a sad development for you know for us because we've grown up in the 80s and 90s thinking uh, and uh, believing that the media tried to be impartial. And certainly, you know, a lot of individual journalists still do uh, try to be impartial. I mean, I think I try to be impartial. I mean, of course, I have my ideological biases, like like any journalist does. But but I think to actually suppress stuff is is just outrageous, <laughs> um, and you know, should not happen. Um, so I think there is a big structural change, and I think it's you know, it's got to do with the change in the financing model of media. It's not driven by advertising as much anymore. It's driven by subscriber fees. And that changes the incentive structure of of the editors. You know, you can't upset your audience too much uh, because at the end of the day, they're paying the bills. Uh, whereas in the old days, it was the advertisers who were paying the bills. So a very different uh, model. No one's fault, if you like. I mean, as an economist, at least that's that's what I trained in. That's how I try to look at the world. You know, what's the economics behind this? Why is this happening? And I think it eventually gets back to the financial side of media. Uh but look, it's also an ideological issue too. I think I think journalists as a group have become a lot more 
I mean, I don't want to say left wing. It's such a stupid kind of phrase now. I don't even know what it means half the time. But they've they've certainly become uh, more elitist, uh, you know, from that that kind of corporatist elite class of society. Uh, whereas a hundred years ago, fifty years ago, they were not. There was, you know, they were less educated. It was it was seen more of as a trade journalism as opposed to profession. So there's been a lot of changes uh, that have led to this phenomenon. Absolutely, yes, and it's certainly an activist uh, bent now. Um, uh, in journalism, perhaps we'll we'll pivot on to to uh, COVID and lockdowns. So, sticking with current news, the, the mask mandate uh, in the US was lifted last week, and there were scenes we saw of che- people cheering on planes and in airports around America. So, what's the situation uh, like at the moment? And are there still hangers on, still pushing for masks to be to be worn? Yeah, look, certainly. I mean, um, had the extraordinary development um, like a week ago where Philadelphia, which is a big US city, uh, reintroduced the uh, kind of general mask mandate, you know, for indoors in that city. It was the only US city to do that. And there was just a slight uptick in so-called cases. And then four days later, it abolished it. So I think, you know, there's there's a lot of politics around this. I think that there was probably some pushback in that case. Uh, the mask mandate on public transport that you refer to, uh, that had been course in place for hundreds and hundreds of days uh it was very controversial uh republicans hated it even some democrats hated it it's worth pointing out the senate which is roughly 50 50 i think voted 55 uh, which means a few democrats also supported it uh to abolish the mask mandate um, and of course the house of reps wouldn't look at it but but you know the senate did did vote to get rid of it so uh there are some dems who hated it too uh there was never any evidence that it did anything still not I mean, I, I joked on Twitter, I think last week, you know, is a case is going through the roof on planes now. I mean, of course they're not. I mean, there'd be absolutely no difference at all. Um, but, uh, yeah, look, it's gone. I mean, interestingly, the uh, government is appealing it. I think the federal government here is is appealing it. When At first they said that they would not, but now they are. I think that's very risky um, uh, for them politically because, you know, it could it's a midterm election year and, you know, do they really want to be forcing people to do things against their will kind of so close to the November midterms? Um, <coughs> um, more generally on the masks. Oh, the other interesting mask issue, and I'm writing about that actually this afternoon, is in New York, uh, toddlers have to wear masks. It's the only jurisdiction in the world <laughs> and it's very strange. Um, no country in Europe ever did this. Uh No other part of America ever did this, but in New York, which obviously has a pocket of extreme leftism in its governing class, um, they insist that uh, toddlers in pre-K and preschool and and kindergarten, um, age two to five, must wear a mask. It's the law. And there have been protests, there have been fights, there have been resignations. Um, Interestingly, a judge actually struck it down as arbitrary and capricious, a New York judge. And then... um, You would have thought a sane government would have seen, okay, well, that's a good way to get out of this because we don't really want to do it. It's our hardcore left crazies who want to do it. But then they appealed it and they won. So now it's in place and it's indefinitely in place. And, I mean, to me it's just just evidence of the collective psychosis of this whole era that you could have people so passionately devoted to a, you know, to a highly interventionist public policy, you know, that is putting bits of cloth on the faces of two- to four-year-olds uh, which is which is not an easy thing to do, I imagine. Um, you know, for seven hours a day, <laughs> um, when there is absolutely no evidence, either empirical or theoretical, that it will make any difference. So it's like a religion. It's a it's a religion. I think you know. I think COVID has 
know, maybe we get into this later, but it's like tapped into a religious need amongst amongst humans that 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 is not kind of satisfied in an atheist world. Yeah, is this masking of such young children? Uh, is it crate training? You know, is it is it, is it getting them primed to just take take orders, take directions from from government without you know w- without any question? You know, it's funny. I mean, I, I spoke to three mums in New York about this, and they're all very upset, uh, kind of about it. And they're all Democrat voters, or they were. They're all going to vote Republican in uh, November. You know, they've been Democrat voters for years. Pretty standard liberal mums in their forties with toddlers, um, and they were telling me that. The rules are so absurd. I mean, these are educated women, been in university. Uh, you know, one of them was a was a lawyer. Um, so absurd and so hard to justify by any rational explanation that they're being led, you know, kind of to conspiracy theory type arguments about, you know, is this all about kind of a new world order? Is it about changing the culture of society? Is it about making, you know, uh, the West more like Asia? You know, what what is all this about? And, I mean... I have those moments myself. Like it's just been such an insane two years, or more than two years now. I mean, it just seems like never ending. Uh, that you sometimes ask these things. Look, I mean, is there some kind of secret push to change society? Because you can't justify these these rules or the behaviour. Um, I mean, at least in any rational framework. That's why I've often said that. You know, I think sociology is probably going to be a more interesting guide to what's happened than economics or law. Just you know, primal human instincts here. Yeah, well, if we if we sort of take a step back for a second and, and look at the beginning, uh, when did you first report on the pandemic? Uh, what was your pandemic experience like personally? Uh, were you in the US throughout? No, so I got here about a year ago exactly, I think a year ago in three weeks. So uh, 1st of April uh, 2021, I got here. Um, so pretty much first year of the pandemic, I was in Sydney living there. In my apartment, um, you know, pandemic struck. What kind of mar- you know went crazy March 2020. Um, and at first, I was really worried. Actually, I was worried about my job. I thought I was gonna. I thought society was gonna kind of collapse because I, you know, I'd read a bit about the Spanish flu. I knew how devastating that was. Um, and so, yeah, I was, I was, I was very worried. And so, I obsessively looked at the data flowing in each day which anyone could do, whether it was World Ometer or the New York Times, whatever it is, you could see the people, you know, the age range of people dying, uh, numbers of people infected and so on. And it became pretty clear to me by the first few weeks of April um, that we were massively exaggerating the threat of this virus. Uh, it just wasn't as deadly. It was nowhere near as deadly as, as, you know, past pandemics. I mean, it was about on par, it seemed. I mean, it was early days back then, but it seemed it was going to be something like the 1958 or 1968 uh, flu pandemics, which were, you know, of course, bad. A lot of people died, and it's horrible. No one wanted this virus, but uh, you know, did it really warrant this absolute madness? Um, and you know, pretty much tearing up uh, the contract, the liberal democratic contract of individual rights, which is what we did. And whether you know whether we ever get it back is a you know a good question, but we certainly tore it up. Um, and I I thought no, and so I wrote a column. I think it was 12th of April or something, 2020. And the sub-editors put on at the title something like, uh, uh, we're overreacting to an unremarkable virus, which of course was a very good heading. I didn't write it, but it was a very good heading. And of course the column went completely viral. People were furious, you know, how dare you? And this is serious. You want to kill grandma? You want to kill your parents? And it was just unbelievable burst of rage uh, directed at me. 
And actually, my parents are worried about me. I got so much hate mail and you know, I think I got one or two death threats and I had to change my name on Facebook. And it was pretty surreal, actually, because I thought, I mean, if you read the column now, it actually reads very well in hindsight. Like, it was pretty much right. Um, I didn't know that at the time, obviously, and it could have gone really badly for me. It could have ended up shocking and I could have looked really awful. But I think I looked really good in hindsight, actually. Um and uh, so anyway, so that was the first one. And then I just kind of kept on that theme, honestly, for the rest of the year, just kind of, you know, writing columns. And at first I was pretty much one of the only ones in Australia. It was, I mean, I'm not sure whether uh, Gigi Foster was first or me, but it was one of us. And um, and a few other journos joined a bit later maybe, but it was honestly a small little band of, you know, four or five of us, uh, Chris Allman, uh, John Keogh, uh, they also wrote fantastic columns. And, and they also got a lot of, you know, a lot of blowback, uh, a lot of aggressive hate. And so it was difficult to come out and say those things. Um, but look, I mean, you ask how it was lockdown for me personally. Look, it was quite good, really. I mean, it was, I'm classic Zoom class person, you know. Um, so I got to stay home, work from home, you know, my costs went down. Uh, you know, salary wasn't affected ultimately. Um so financially, it suited me, just like I, you know, just like it suits a lot of the Zoom class. And that's, I mean, it sickens me, but I think a lot of them, you know, are call for it because it suits their personal circumstances, and they have no empathy or understanding of what it does to other uh, to other households or other groups of people at different stages of life or with different financial situations. Uh, so it, it was, I mean, it was incredibly polarizing. I mean, you you really lose friendships and acquaintances over it. Um, and I certainly have. I mean, there's people I will never speak to again. I mean, for the rest of my life. I mean, it means that much to me that someone who is educated could call for those policies. Uh, I still can't fathom it because, and you know, stop me if I'm just waffling on, but I mean, for me, the most fascinating part of this whole two years is that every country, you know, every Western country had a detailed pandemic plan, all written. You know, some of them, you know, dozens of pages, maybe hundreds of pages, you know, all carefully, uh, you know, coolly put together over years based on the best empirical and, and theoretical understanding of how to deal with a contagious disease like, you know, like a coronavirus or like a flu. Um, and they were completely ignored, completely ignored. I mean, these, these plans ex explicitly said in many cases, never do what, what we did. Never lock your society down like that. Mm. It's basically madness. And the costs of doing so will far, far outweigh uh, the benefits. And those benefits, in fact, may be really, really small because it's just very hard to stop a contagious virus. Uh, and no one's answered that, that question. Um, well, actually, to his credit, you know, the a notorious, uh, the infamous uh, Neil Ferguson, the professor in London who produced those scary models that said millions would die. I mean, to his credit, he said he was honest about it in late 2020 when he did an interview with the London Times. And he basically said the only reason we all locked down is because China did. And we never thought that we could get away with it. And then Italy did it. And we thought, oh, maybe we can be like China. And so we did it too. It's the most breathtaking two paragraphs in the last two years of my life. And it was very candid, and I'm so glad he said it because it's very true. Uh, his side would not have liked the fact he said it. Um, but it's those words, get away with it, that sort of. Exactly, keeps, exactly. Keeps so you've read it as well. And it is, it is just 
extraordinary. Um, and I just think, God, imagine if this virus had have emerged in Sweden or Spain or or Africa. We might not have done anything. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's. I mean, we would have done some things. I shouldn't be too flippant. I mean, it's clearly a virus that that is lethal to many people, and it's you know, it's killed about you know four or five million people. Um, so you know, it's something. Uh, so about these if- these non pharmaceutical interventions, lockdowns, masks, curfews. You know, what's your what's your overall view on these? Um, well, the lockdowns are the worst, obviously, uh, because they they're the greatest in, infringement on human rights, and they're just so diametrically opposed to uh, previous public health practice in the West. Um, and they are inspired by a totalitarian regime. And I think what we're seeing right now in Shanghai, I mean, it's just extraordinary, right? I mean, it's it's so it's so awful that I think you know, um, so-called team lockdown, as I like to call them, back you know, back in Australia, uh, they must be horrified and so embarrassed, and they say nothing about it, but they must know deep down that that's the model that inspired their calls back in in you know March 2020, April 2020 to lock Melbourne down seven times. And it, it was, it's exactly the same ideology, right? Except China took it a little bit further, but at the end of the day, it's the same, same mentality. Uh, so lockdowns are the worst. Masks, um, masks probably infuriate me the most, though, because there was so much evidence, uh, so many studies before March 2020 that said they wouldn't work. Whereas, I mean, in fairness to lockdown advocates, because they've never really been tried, I mean, logically, you could assume that they're madness, and indeed they are, but there hadn't really been any real-world kind of tests on them. But they had for masks, many, many of them, randomised control trials, uh, and it's pretty clear that the the aerosolised viral particles go straight through the masks or indeed go around them. So, I mean, they they don't stop the spread of the virus. And yet they were, you know, enforced with such kind of religious zeal uh, with no effect. I mean, I don't think anything's failed as spectacularly as masks in the history of public health intervention. I mean, you cannot see on a chart where they were introduced, where they ended. You know, the, the trajectories of the virus in every country, they just do their own thing. It's got, Ian Miller's got uh, just a... a, a oh, yeah, he's fantastic. He's a fantastic guy. We've interviewed him, and his his graphs are now legendary. And they they, they, they exactly what you're saying, which is that masks are, you know, they tell no story whatsoever. Like as you know, no, I mean, if you just show people a graph and say, you know, where did the you know where were the masks introduced? When were the masks introduced? I mean, they're not going to be able to point to any. Uh, any so, and actually, it's worth pointing out. This is far more controversial, and maybe I'll get cancelled now. But say it. You can't do that with the vaccination rollout either. Like, if you just look at deaths over time. And you just take off all the other details and say, okay, when were you know when were the vaccines rolled out? <laughs> I mean, it's not clear at all. You'd think if they were as highly effective as as everyone constantly says, that there'd be some obvious point at which the deaths drop away. But there's not. Now I'm not saying they don't do anything. I mean, I think they probably do, but it's marginal. And I think to be telling people that uh, you know that's a it's a some great advance scientific advance i think it's maybe over egging it a bit absolutely so maybe maybe you can give us a uh your economic view on the cost of lockdowns one of the annoying things about the analysis of lockdowns for me which um kind of infuriated me 
in the first year back in 2020 when I guess we were first discussing them was the fact that people only talked about GDP you know that 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 was the only cost of lockdowns which is incredibly narrow and stupid uh, view of human nature and human interaction I mean all the things that are good in life are not in GDP <laughs> I mean you know the happiness and joy with friends being with relatives none of that's in GDP right it doesn't show up in GDP and yet all of those things were stopped, right? They was all stopped as if they had no value. And you had these, you know, pathetic economists in my view, I won't name names, but if they watch this, they know exactly who I'm talking about. You know, basically doing these stupid little models about whether a lockdown was logical or not, or you passed a cost-benefit analysis just based on what it did to GDP. I mean, what sort of strange upbringing in childhood or, or you know, or history does, does one have to have not to realize that all the good things in life are pretty much not in GDP. Um, and all those things were stopped. So, so my point being is the cost of these lockdowns is vastly, vastly greater than just looking at what it does to GDP. And indeed, I don't think I wrote once in two years that the primary cost of lockdowns was about the economic impact or the, or the narrow economic impact. I mean, for me, it was always about just this outrageous trampling on the rights of individuals and families to see each other, to travel, you know, fundamental rights, you know, to, uh, to express views. I mean, let's let's be clear with this whole kind of public health uh, totalitarian response uh, came censorship, right? On a scale that we probably haven't seen since Second World War in a in a Western country, and you know that was all part of the deal too. So, uh, so not only did you have a complete crushing of kind of civil society, you also had the beginning of censorship where. Remember the woman in Victoria who was arrested in her house for posting on Facebook? I mean, that that would happen in China, I have no doubt, regularly, but it happened in Victoria. I mean, that's just, it still can't believe it happened. And maybe there were other cases. I don't well, know. Well, let's stay with Victoria for a second, just, just while you're on, on that. We saw some shocking events. The curfews, huge fines for simply leaving your home to be with your friends and loved ones. Uh, police... Yeah, arresting a pregnant woman on Facebook, a Facebook post, you know, beating and bashing non-compliant civilians, some of them drug-affected and already suffering trauma from what I saw. You know, we saw migrants locked in concrete towers, uh, you know, the use of serious imported crowd control weapons on civilians, the list goes on. So what are we to make of these things now that we know that zero COVID doesn't work, that lockdowns and masks don't work in the way that they're being sold that they do so what did we lose you already mentioned some of it but what did we lose in the name of public health and why does no one seem to care well i mean i think we're not going to recognize these facts for years i mean there is no way that governments are going to admit uh fault over lockdowns or or their or their vast bulk of their cheerleaders um yeah that's just not going to happen that's just human nature i mean they're, they're going to defend that position to the hilt until they die uh, which is a very sad. I mean, some will admit error, and in the US, some doctors have, and I think it's extraordinary. Some of them said, "Look, I was wrong. The lockdowns I thought were sensible, they weren't. They barely did anything and caused chaos." Um, so, I mean, I think it's going to be a period of soul searching for public health around the Western world as the years go on. Uh, more and more researchers, younger researchers who were not involved in the decisions, will feel more inclined to criticize what happened and it's pretty easy to do so because the data is just staring at you it's just so obvious that these things didn't work um and yet there's an enormous reluctance at the moment to show that empirically i mean of course there are lots of studies that show it but 
not as many as there should be. And that's because of the enormous power of the, you know, the government and the professors that argued for lockdowns are obviously uh, snuffing those sorts of analyses out. But eventually I think there's going to be more and more of these papers and it's going to be extremely damning for society's elites and, and the public health elites in, in particular. Um, I mean, you, some of the stuff that happened was, as you know, just madness, but the, you know, the stuff with children and, and schools and universities is you know, probably the maddest of all, uh, the most insane of all. Um, because we knew, you know, it's worth stressing because I'm, I mean, as the lockdown people realised they were wrong, they, they try to insert these, try to change history a bit to make their position seem less mad, less insane. But, you know, they say, oh, well, we didn't know about the severity of the virus until, you know, very late in 2020. Well, that's complete rubbish. I mean, they knew. I mean, you knew from the, what, what the Diamond Princess, what was that a boat called in, in Japan? Was it Diamond Princess? Diamond yeah. something. It, it basically, there was... A scientist who pretty much calculated the infection fatality ratios for all age groups based on that boat. It was a fantastic experiment because it was contained. There are a few thousand people on them, on the boat, largely old, and had all their details, worked out who died. And pretty much from that, you could see the infection fatality ratio of the disease, you know, throughout the West. And it's, it's held up very well. And the uh, bottom line is it wasn't particularly lethal. It never was. I mean, I had lots of friends who had it in early 2020 who lived in America. And, you know, some of them got quite ill, some of them didn't, um, you know, none of them died. Still don't know anyone who's died. I must say, I, you know, for someone, you know, the three of us, we've all lived through the greatest pandemic in a thousand years, uh, but I still don't know anyone who's died from it. So that's- I, I, do, know, that's know, <laughs> I do know a bunch of people who've died of other things and weren't allowed to see their loved ones like in their caskets because of lockdowns. Well, I do know. yes, of course. And look, I mean, I'm being slightly flippant. I'm, I do know of people who've died, uh, but I don't know. I'm just, just thinking out loud. I mean, I don't know anyone uh, directly who's even been seriously incapacitated by it. I mean, I mean, I've had it and I got pretty ill, but I mean, not ill enough to go to the doctors. I mean, I just I stayed at home for a few days and, and, and sweat a lot and had a fever. Uh, and that's, that's, that's kind of the experience of, of everyone that I know, including older people, actually. Um, so the, and this is, this is worth dwelling on too. Um, and the contrast with the Spanish flu, if I could just, just for a few minutes, because I mean, this really blows me away in 1918, when the Spanish flu struck at the end of 1918, and it was a very serious disease. I mean, it was, you know, hundreds of times worse than what we're dealing with now. I mean, seriously scary stuff. And the average age of death was 28. I mean, on some estimates, it killed 5% of all young people in the US in about six months. I mean, 5% of the total gone. I mean, there were, you know, you know, there were babies without parents everywhere. It was just, it was just an absolute social disaster. Um, but because it was wartime, it was the First World War, um, the US media wasn't allowed to talk about the virus. They said, you know, they could talk about it a little bit, but they could not scare people about it. But that was illegal. And yet... You had most of the US population absolutely terrified of, of the virus, right? Because it, they did not need the media to tell them about it because they all knew someone who died or they knew of young people who died. And indeed, I can't remember which state it was, some Midwest state, uh, people were so panicked, some rumour went around about uh, that dogs could spread it and then all the families shot their dogs, right? I mean, you know, their pets, which they would have loved. I mean, can you imagine how, I mean, as anyone who's had a dog, that's really sad. I mean, to shoot your own pet is really is really awful. And of course, the virus was never was never 
found in dogs, it was false. But um, it just goes to the fact that, you know, that was a real pandemic, a serious pandemic. And it, the media did not need to be involved. I mean, people were scared. Whereas now it's the complete opposite. The media is just scaring the crap out of people 24 seven, at least not so much now, but it was for, you know, for two years. And yet on the ground, people don't know anyone who's died from it. So I mean, it's like complete opposite. Very strange. Yeah, well, I, I I don't know anyone personally that, that that's died of it. Um, so I don't think John has either. Um, we spoke to Gigi Foster a little while ago, and she uh, she was gunning for some sort of Nuremberg esque trial to happen, where some of these decision makers would be held to account. Do you think that's ever going to happen? No. Look, I mean, I wish I wish it did. It'd be wonderful to watch. Uh, but if it does, like I said, it won't happen for many years. I mean, you pretty much need to get to a point where the current a generation of political leaders have moved on because they're not going to endorse any, any commission that finds fault with them. And so I think, you know, there's, there's calls in Australia, right, for some sort of royal commission. I'm very sceptical that's going to do much. I mean, let's, politicians are going to appoint the commissioners so they kind of know what they're going to say. You know, there'll be some sort of tacit agreement or tacit understanding, I should say, about you know who what's going to happen in this uh, this commission and you know the commissioners themselves I mean you know, let's face it you know eighty percent of society's elite and I just kind of pulled that out of the air we're in agreement with these policies eighty percent it's going to be and and you know that 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 percentage in my view gets higher and higher the more elite you get so it's going to be very hard to find a commissioner even who's going to want to conclude that what he wanted a couple of years ago was wrong. So um, I, don't, I don't think that's going to happen. I think it's going to come out in the academic studies and, and the journals in, in decades' time from, from ambitious young academics who want to make a name for themselves. And one way to do that is to write good but controversial papers. Um, what about the, the 2020 project? Uh, what is that? Well, that's what it should be called. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, sorry. Yes, yes, exactly. Yes, that's right. Yeah, look, I mean, it's uh, – and look, I mean, I think that will happen. I mean, mind you, all this is contingent on, and this is, you know, maybe maybe too dark, but it's contingent upon our society reverting to pre-2020 norms. Um, my worry is that it might not. I mean, I think it probably will, but, you know, we have shaken our – our liberal democracies so heavily with these rules and censorship and and you know witch burning type type activities uh, that I don't I don't know if it's if it's going to come back as uh, you know kind of just as strongly um, I mean the fact that governments can just do whatever they want if they say public health I mean is just unbelievable you know and and. The thought experiment, um, which I mentioned in another podcast, which really worries me, just imagine if if the virus was a bit more lethal and a bit more contagious, you know, back in that March 2020. I mean, just imagine, let's say it was half as bad as the Spanish flu. You know, not as bad, just half, you know, which would have been far worse than what we actually dealt with. You know, would the police have just shot people in the street? I mean, I'm just trying to extrapolate the response, right, because the response, in my view, was crazy for a pretty mild virus. So if it's a serious virus, you know, how insane does it get? I mean, do you have police walking around shooting people if they're outside? It's not that, uh, it's not that much of a crazy thing to say, right? I mean, you, you think of the, the sheer hysteria that was in society in April, May 2020. 
I reckon that would have been popular. Yeah, get him, get him, yeah, shouldn't be outside, you know, all this sort of crap. Um, it would have been popular, I think. Um, and that's 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 pretty terrifying. Well, I wanted to uh, chat a little bit about welfare for a second here, Adam. Uh, here in Australia, we had a welfare initiative called the JobKeeper uh, it, it, that was in place during the pandemic, where essentially some people, not all people, were paid to stay at home and not work. Uh, the government spent a lot, uh, one might use the technical term, a shitload uh, on this scheme. <laughs> now, I'm a complete dummy when it comes to economics, and I suspect a few of our listeners are too. Can you tell me where this money comes from? Did the Australian government borrow this money from Chinese investors, overseas banks? How does that work? Yeah, well, look, I mean, some of it was, I mean, most of Australia's public debt is borrowed from overseas. I think you know, I'm kind of, I'm trying to put my economics editor hat back on from a couple of years ago now. I think it's something like two thirds of public debt in Australia is held by foreigners. But again, you know, when, when COVID struck, the kind of the world's economic system changed a lot and governments borrowed so much money, you know, borrowed, um, that the ultimate source for the funds was their own central bank. Um, so the Reserve Bank of Australia did this, the US Fed Reserve did this, uh, European Central Bank did this, and basically what, what happens is the, uh, the government's borrowing requirements are so vast that there's just not enough money already in existence, if you like, to lend to them, um, at least at low rates, at low interest rates. So their central bank uh, creates the money <clears throat> Now it doesn't. I mean, it likes to create a fig leaf of independence. Um, so it doesn't. It doesn't just give the money to the government, which which it could do, uh, but it doesn't do that. It uh, basically gives the money to the private banks, and then the private banks buy the new bonds. Right. So I mean, it's just that's literally what happens. That's called quantitative easing, if you like. It's been happening on a much much smaller scale for about you know twelve years since the global financial crisis. Uh, but it happened on an extraordinary scale in the past two years. And actually, my column in the paper yesterday was uh, was about how I think the uh, main culprit for this inflationary burst that we're seeing in Australia and around the world is, is, is this phenomenon. And you know, the increase in the money supply for like the amount of money in the economy, I mean, in Australia, it's gone up something like 25% in just two years. Right, which is pretty mind-blowing. I mean, what else has increased 25% in two years? The population? No. You know, goods and services out there? No. Very little's increased by 25% except the money supply. So that's gone up. In the US, it's gone up 50%. I mean, it's amazing, right? Um, and that's where you've got the highest inflation right now, by the way, in the US. Uh, so the, you know, the, the tragedy is, or the, you know, the problem with this is that it's, it's very hard to unwind. I mean, the money's out there now and there's going to be high inflation, I think, for a year or two at least as, it, as the you know, prices kind of catch up with this. Um, and that's going to cause all sorts of social problems and political unrest eventually. Just, you know, you've got the war at the same time in Ukraine, which is having its own inflationary impact, but I think on a much smaller scale than the, uh, than the money supply growth issue. So yeah, that's where the money comes from. Like, they've and you know the, the 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 cultural problem with all this is that governments have become used to now being able to spend really without without having to properly raise the money, uh, which is pretty dangerous when you think about it. They know that their central bank's just going to create it, um, so that means the budget constraint that used to exist doesn't really exist as much anymore. 
so that leads to much more spending, much more stupid spending, especially around an election. Uh, you know, you kind of got to laugh a bit at the Liberals back home about their, you know, kind of debt and deficit mantra thing. I mean, that's definitely gone. <laughs> um, I mean, they're just as bad as Labor, really. I mean, I, I don't see how you can distinguish between them. Uh, but it's not just in Australia. This is the same phenomenon in the US, in, in the UK. It's a, I mean, if we're all going down, we're all going down together at least. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, we'll, we'll pivot on to the US uh, and, and, and some other issues in a second. But just before we move on, I should have asked this a second ago. This is a very selfish question. But now you were on, a, uh, on our favourite program, Q&A, uh, in March last year uh, with Gigi Foster. Look, it's not my favourite program, Adam. And I, the only thing I regret uh, doing this show is that I've had to watch a lot of Q&A in my preparation. <laughs> yes. and, yeah. uh, but I just had to ask, you know, you guys were asked to go on this show and since you were given about 30 seconds in the whole program because other people were grandstanding. Yeah. And um, it was quite grotesque to watch actually. But I'm just fascinated. What, what, what is, was it like? You know, did you know, do you sort of know before you go in that there's going to be stunt questioners and a gotcha moment? I mean, someone even got up. That was where. Oh, uh, there was an uh, old lady, wasn't there? Who had a yeah, well, John, John, do the voice. She was in her 60s. At your words. <laughs> do the voice. She, she was like, she was like, oh, I want to speak to Gigi Foster and Adam Crane. How can you stand yourself? How do you go to sleep at night? Basically, it was you're a killer. And, and it went on forever. And, um, and. You were meant to come up with some sort of re- reply, and uh, and I don't know. You did, you know. It was it was. A, it, what was the whole experience like? Uh, yeah, look, I mean, I knew that sort of thing was going to happen. I mean, I've been on that show twice. It's very stressful for people like me because you know that, you know, the the audience kind of hates you, and, and most of the other panelists hate you, and they try to you know typecast you as this kind of you know super villain, uh, caricature, evil person. Um, and, but look, I mean, it was actually that, that show was like three or four nights before I flew to the U S so I didn't really care about how it came <laughs> off. I was leaving the country. So, and in fact, my editor was a bit annoyed. I went on actually, but anyway, um, but I just thought, look, this will be fun. You know, I'm just going to say what I think about lockdowns and then leave the country. So, you know, if I, if I get canceled, at least I'm just canceled in Australia and not, not in the U S. Um, but, yeah, look, I mean, they give you the broad topics before you go on. Uh, so Zizi and I had that, and we had a drink before. The two of us had a drink uh, before the show that night and just kind of colluding, exchanged thoughts on what we were going to say when we were attacked. This is what it comes, this is what has to happen. If you've got an opinion, you had to go, you guys had to, look, the other people who were pretty loose, by the way, they didn't meet beforehand. They just got on and said, you know what, I'm going to say, Whatever I want, whatever I goddamn want, and everyone's going to listen. Whereas you know, guys have to hide in a bar. Clap. I know. Yeah, right. Everyone will clap. No, um, actually, from memory of that panel, I thought Stan Grant, who I actually quite like, um, I mean, you know, we have our disagreements, but he's very articulate and a good speaker. I thought he kind of agreed with me and Gigi on some of our points, not others. Can't quite remember. Maybe I'm totally wrong, but um, I know in private he does. <laughs> That's a whole other issue, by the way, on the whole COVID thing. So many senior figures, and I you know, I, I guess I probably shouldn't say, but in private they are much more sympathetic to Gigi's and my views and others than they let on in public. Um, you know, very senior politicians, uh, let's say, household names, basically completely agree with me. Um, but I won't say 
who they are because, you know, they'd be very angry with me. But um, although maybe not so much now that uh, Zizi and I have been proven right, but maybe that will change. But, um, yeah, it was just this fear of being cancelled, you know, by Q&A kind of audience types in society at large that made people very scared to speak out against the mob. We're running a little short of time, but but pivot to US politics, if we could, for a moment here. Uh, so let's talk about Biden. Uh, Biden campaigned as, as a moderate, uh, a centrist Democrat, and his overarching position was advocating for uh, unity and, and, and trying to bridge the divide between conservatives and liberals in the US. And it seemed to us uh, that the hope was that he would be a kind of a, a Bill Clinton-like president. Uh, what does his report card look like in this regard? Is he bringing Americans from either aisle of, of politics together? No, look, he's sadly not. And I think he could have. I mean, he's kind of a likeable old man. I, I feel sorry for him. He's clearly like losing his, his cognitive abilities, I think, at a, an increasingly rapid rate, uh, and I watch him every day, all these press conferences and so forth, and it's it's you know, pretty dire. It's only you know a little over one year in. He's got three years to go. It's going to be a lot worse in three years when when supposedly he's running for re-election. Um, he's you know it, it was a uh, he's been captured by the far left of his party, who are very vocal, very noisy, uh, you know, far more famous in the US. You know, the Squad type people, the AOC type people. Uh, you know, the vast bulk of Democrats in the Congress would not agree with those those people, I think, on most things, but you never hear from the centrists. Uh, and I, but, but, but I think, you know, Biden's judgment is just is not great. I mean, all he had to do really was just not be Trump and not really do anything, and I think most Americans would have, would have liked that. It would have been a big contrast to the Trump years, which... You know, had some positives, had some negatives, but I think I think you'd have to say they were pretty chaotic. I mean, whether you like him or or dislike him, uh, but you know, Biden's pushed you know a lot of a far left uh, bills through Congress, which have failed, which has kind of made it look even more embarrassing. Uh, you know, the Build Back Better thing, huge environmental subsidies. Um, I mean, I feel sorry for him on inflation because it's not really his fault. I mean, like I said before, this money printing happened kind of like under the Trump administration and it was really because, and it wasn't just the US, it was all around the world. It was kind of the zeitgeist at the time and now he's left with the consequences and is being blamed. Um, and really there are no, there's no string he can pull to fix it. There's, there's nothing. So he's just got to live with it, basically. Um but no, they haven't united Americans. I mean, the polling is terrible. I mean, I think he, I think he came in uh, just over a year ago with something like fifty-nine percent approval. It's about thirty-nine now, which, depending on the poll you look at, is worse even than Trump at this point of Trump's presidency, which makes him the most unpopular president, uh, Biden, since the Second World War. Um, so something's not working, uh, and the focus too on the you know that they. Cultural issues, I think, is what is where Republicans really thrive right now. You know, the, the critical race theory debate, the schools debate. There's all this stuff about trans people in sport. I mean, you could argue, and I think it's probably true. These are these are, these are fairly niche, marginal issues, but they make people really angry. Um, and yeah, you can understand why. And the Republicans are are thrashing the Dems on these issues, um, and the far left of the party just can't shut up about them. So it's a it's a real problem for the centrist Dems, um, 
And so I think there's going to be a wipeout in November unless there's some you know, dramatic change. I think the Senate and the and the House of Reps are going to will go back to the Republican Party. And if you think that you know the government now is is a bit of a bit of a farce, it's going to be a lot worse then, you know, because it'll be such a laid-back White House. I have a question, a broader question, and look, maybe you can't answer it, but it, it it's it's just about it's a it's about politics. What why can't wouldn't the Democrats, for instance, or any of their equivalents across the West, if they planted their feet and took some of these issues that you mentioned, these these cultural issues, and applied a common sense rubric to them and said, you know, pretty much what most of us say all the time when we're not like, you know, in front of a camera, uh, then wouldn't they gain, wouldn't they just gain so much ground and so, and, and they could actually, I don't know, get back to governing. Like, you know, people seem to be waiting for them to just, but they can't even say simple things. Look, it's a very good point. And I don't know the answer to that. I don't know why the president doesn't give a big speech doing exactly that. Just basically telling his left to shut up and saying, this is what he believes in. And, you know, he agrees with most Americans on these issues, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, the problem is the far left of the party would hate him for that. And, you know, I don't know enough about the internal workings of the Democratic Party, but they are obviously a very powerful force within it. And, uh, you know, that would have consequences for Biden, I imagine, in, in some way. I mean, I don't think that Biden himself is a far left guy. I think he's pretty centrist, traditional sort of man. I mean, uh but yeah, for some reason, as you say, he doesn't he doesn't actively try to snuff out these extremist elements that are costing him and the party so much in in the wider US. Uh, kind of in the meantime, you know, the Republicans are having a field day with, with this stuff, and there's lots of crazies on their side too. But um, they don't seem to worry. I think the wider population as much as this critical race theory, the, the trans stuff in schools. You know, that seems a lot more salient. I think to the average mum and dad with young kids than, you know, whether Marjorie Taylor Greene thinks the Jews are running the world or some crazy thing like that. So that just seems a bit, you know, that doesn't matter. But if there's a story about, you know, teachers uh, encouraging their kids to transition, that's real. You know, whether it's true or not, that's that's salient. Uh, I, I believe Donald Trump uh, had an executive order to get rid of uh, critical race theory in schools. And I think uh, Biden overturned that when he became president. Um Will, uh, do you think Donald Trump will run again in 2024? And what do you think his chances are? Look, it's a really good question. I was just thinking about this yesterday. It's like the number one question. Uh, and I don't know the answer. Obviously, only Donald Trump knows that answer. I think it'll be clearer after the midterms when he sees how his candidates go. He's, you know, he's, he's nominated dozens and dozens of Republican uh, candidates around the country for Congress. So that's all very clear. So let's see how, you know, most famously recently, J.D. Vance, the author in Ohio, uh, he's picked for the Senate race there. Um, so let's see how these candidates do. Uh, but Trump, um, I mean, the latest, the latest polling shows him ahead of Biden in a hypothetical uh, presidential match by, by a few points, um, which if you're a Democrat, you'd be pretty worried about because, you know, the election's still a few years away. Biden's not going to get any sharper. And unless Trump you know, does, I mean, it's hard to see how more crazy Trump could be than he already has been. So, I mean, I don't know. He, I don't think he can go any lower. So, so. Um, but don't you think the next election is amazing no matter what happens? Like, like if, if Biden runs, you've got an 80-year-old man running for president. Like, 
that's amazing. If he doesn't run and, and put someone else in, that's amazing because that would be just a car crash. But if Trump runs if Trump runs again, that's amazing. It's, it's going to be. It is. I know. <laughs> I mean, I, you know, my personal view is, I, you know, as much as, as, as a journalist, you know, we miss Trump because it was just so entertaining and just a generator of so many stories, I think it would kind of tear the US apart if he runs again. Um, and, it, and for that, I think it's not a good idea. And I, I kind of hope personally that he doesn't run and that he anoints someone else. I mean, I'm a bit of a fan of Ron DeSantis, I have to say. I probably shouldn't say that as a journalist, but look, I am. Um, he's very smart. Uh, you know, he's got a lot of Trump's attributes, but he's extremely competent. Um, and he's a bit more conventional in his style. And I think if someone like that ran, I think he'd, he'd just annihilate like someone like Biden or, um, <clears throat> or a more, you know, or some other Biden equivalent. I mean, the problem for the Dems is they don't really have a tier of politicians in their 50s and 60s, which, of course, in the US is young. <laughs> um, uh, they don't have a tier of politicians in that age group who, who are, you know, famous enough to easily step up, um, whereas the Republicans have lots of, of, of potential candidates, you know, kind of governors and senators who are jockeying to run. Um, cotton, all these sort yeah, of... Yeah, cotton, your Hawleys, you know, Cruz will run for the 10th time. Uh, yeah, you know, these, these sorts of people... Uh, they have, you know, they have national profiles. They're very articulate. Um, you know, there's, yeah, lots of governors, like I, I mentioned, a DeSantis, or there's, you know, Kirsty Noem in South Dakota. Um, the Dems have only got, well, Gavin Newsom, who's obviously very famous in California, but I don't think he would play very well nationally, so I don't think that's going to work. Uh, your Kamala Harris, as you know, is extremely unpopular. Um, so she's, you know, she might, well, you know, she might end up being president for a year. Who knows if something happens to Biden, uh, you could not rule that out. You could definitely not rule that out. Um, but yeah, I mean, apart from then, I mean, who is there? I mean, Biden said, and apparently last week was telling Obama that he's definitely running again. I mean, he kind of has to say that, I suppose, but you know, whether he really believes it, you know, no one knows, but, but both parties have the problem that their leaders, if you like. Uh, Trump and Biden have both said that they're, you know, thinking they're either going to run or, or they've hinted that they're going to run, and that makes it very hard for, uh, for younger people to put their hand up, um, and prepare. So both parties have the same kind of problem in that sense. Mm, well, just sticking with Trump, Trump for a moment here. Uh, I can remember the moment that that it was announced that Trump took out the 2016 presidential ele- presidential election, and. I heard it on the radio while while whilst I was in my car, and there was a palpable sense of dread in the air, and the media class were acting like Hitler had just been elected. Now, the Donald has a lot of flaws, but comparing him to Hitler is a bit much. Uh, what's your assessment of his treatment in the media leading up to and during his presidency? Actually, it's funny you say that. I went skiing a couple of weeks ago in Utah with some other journalists, and uh, and there was one of the runs, one of the green runs was called Trump Run. And so we stopped and got a photo at the at the sign, and we had to ask some random skier to take our photo. And then you know we said to him, "Did you get the sign in?" And he said, "No." And we said, "No, no, we want the like the whole point. We want the sign in?" And he said, "What? That's Hitler." And then, <laughs> okay. Um, anyway, so I just that just reminded me of that's just some random rich American who thinks Trump's Hitler. So yeah, it's 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 real. Um, uh, yeah, I know. I never got that. But honestly, I'm sick of Second World War analogies. Can I just put that out there? I'm so over it. Is that, it's not the only war in history. All I ever hear about Second World War. I mean, we need to teach more wars at high school, I think. 
but yeah, look, it's just absurd. I mean, Trump it has many flaws, but the idea is Hitler is just ridiculous. I mean, he's a new, you know, New York real estate agent, um, um, not agent, sorry, property developer. Um, and, you know, he's got, <laughs> I mean, he couldn't be more different from Adolf Hitler in his in his upbringing or his, his international outlook or anything like that. Uh, but I think, you know, you just call people Hitler when you don't really have a strong argument or you don't really want to engage. Um, it's become a comedy, really. I mean, that, that's the, the, the low-down tactic is to do that. But how do we, what do we make of the highbrow tactic of, I mentioned it earlier, of democracy dies in darkness? Isn't it, that's the same thing. That's the same ideological trick. You're so, they, 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 that, that publication uh, painted themselves as uh, some kind of grand resistance. Yeah, it's pretty extraordinary. And also that, that publication is furious about Elon Musk's uh, purchase of Twitter when, of course, they're owned by, by a billionaire themselves. I mean, it doesn't make any sense. Um uh, yeah, look, well, that, that goes back to our earlier chat about the state of the media in the US and the, and the state of the media in general. I mean, you have these publications like the Washington Post, the New York Times, which have on their banners these, you know, inspiring phrases about, you know, neutrality and independence, but they do not live up to them at all. And they're, they're becoming, I mean, I, you know, I like to be careful with my language, but, you know, they're becoming, I think, kind of propaganda outlets for, for one side of politics. And it's really worrying. I mean, I'm not saying the other side's not biased too. I think, you know, I mean, I watch, you know, kind of all day I flick between Fox and CNN and MSNBC. I, I feel like that's what I kind of have to do. And you're like, it's like two different worlds, you know, like there's almost no common stories carried between the two of them. Um, whereas in the old days, you know, there would have been a lot more crossover uh, between the news networks. So, look, I think they're both, you know, they're both biased. But, you know, I think it's worse. I've got to say, I think it's worse on the CNN kind of Washington Post side. I mean... You know, you're talking about active suppression of stuff there. It's pretty wild. Yes, it's the. I think it, what makes it so galling is that is that it's uh, it's it's all the institutions have been captured. So and they seem to be, you know, in line with that. Indeed. Uh, well, just just keeping keeping with Trump for maybe one more question. Uh, what's your what's your assessment of the Trump presidency's economic achievements pre-COVID pandemic? Well, look, I mean. He- if you subscribe to the view that whatever happens during an administration is 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 the is the it can be attributed to the policies of the administration, and I'm I'm kind of generally reluctant to do that. But if you do that, then you know Trump's administration has a lot to crow about. I mean the you know the unemployment rate fell to extraordinarily low level, what three point five or something, um, I think, before the pandemic struck, which hadn't happened since the sixties or the fifties. And I think more importantly than that is uh, real wages, household wages, especially for minority groups, uh, black Americans and Hispanics, rose at the fastest pace in, in decades. And, you know, that's a real achievement. I mean, that's a, that's a great outcome. Um, you know, the, 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 the Trump, um, uh, Trump people like to talk about energy independence too. I mean, I think that was a bit more of an accident. But, look, I mean, it happened. I mean, briefly, uh, the US was energy independent and they're not now. Um, so I thought, you know, I thought Trump's in record, if you actually look at what he said, you know, what he did was pretty good, both in a domestic sense and, and a foreign policy sense. Uh, I mean, I, I thought, you know, his, his tax cut policy could have been a bit different, but, you know, you can't, you can't always get what, what you want all the time as a commentator. I mean, I think it was a better record, say, than Biden's record so far. I think much better. Um, so, yeah, so I think, I think history will, will look much better on the Trump presidency than, than, than the conventional wisdom is right now. Well, very mindful of the time, Adam. We've got one, about one and a half very short questions left. And, and, and 
quickly, as a journalist who's dealt with uncomfortable truths, what advice do you have for people listening who might be afraid of losing friends and jobs uh, and uh, for going against the grain? Yeah, well, look, I mean, just that, <clears throat> that as a journalist, you kind of have to be prepared to do that. And I think I, think I have, and it's been pretty awkward and uncomfortable, uh, you know, losing friends and acquaintances over the whole lockdown thing. But that's life, you know. Um, there are, you know, big issues crop up from a, from time to time and you have to take a stand. Uh, some things really matter. I mean, when the, when the pandemic struck, I was just, you know, I, I noted that, you know, pretty much for the 10 years of my writing journalism, what I've been writing about didn't really matter. And then suddenly this really mattered. Like these were like changes which actually affected people's lives, not about you know, whether GDP was 3.9 or 3.7. I mean, who cares about that? But, you know, if you're suddenly are taking away people's liberties for months on end indefinitely, uh, that's a big deal. Um, so, yeah, so a big issue um, on journalism in general. Yeah, look, I mean, it's a, it's still a very exciting industry. I encourage people to try to get into it. Um, but it's, you know, it's demanding and stressful too, <laughs> I must say. Well, we, we ask all of our guests uh, the same, same question to end. Uh, we'd like to know what you're reading right now. Uh, what I'm reading? Well, um, I'm reading a book about Anthony Fauci, actually, by, um, uh, by Robert Kennedy, um, which is a long, detailed book that kind of delves into his, his history and the history of the FDA and the NIDIA and the corruption between the pharmaceutical industry and, and those government agencies. I've only just started, but it's a pretty depressing read. Um, but I just finished a biography of Napoleon, which is very different, but um, that was a great read too. Uh, you know, I mean, it seems like a long time ago, but it was only 200 years ago. That's not that long ago, really. And it was a very different world, obviously. Um, but, yeah, there was a plague briefly in the Middle East during that time, and I must admit I, I read that bit with interest because it was a real plague. People were just dropping dead in the streets and you know, they were disfigured and just shocking. Uh, and, you know, I compared that with what we're dealing with now and it's just a farce, really, by comparison. Yes. Well, we'll, we'll have to definitely check those out. Now, just a, very quickly, where can people find your work? How do they follow you online? Uh, yeah, so... Uh, so I, on Twitter, I am just my name, Adam underscore Crichton. Uh, so you can follow me there. I post pretty much all of my articles there and also make a lot of you know flippant and sarcastic comments as well. Uh, or you can just Google me and you'll and you'll you'll find my page at the Australian, uh, theaustralian.com.au, and you can see my articles there as well. Uh, I'm often on Sky News too, so you can catch me there sometimes. So anyway, and here of course, I look forward to tweeting this. I just hope Wonderful. I don't get cancelled. I always always worry on these things that I say something I shouldn't say. <laughs> we'll I'll go out together. For the, next, for the next 12 hours, I'll be nervous about this. I don't worry. No, I'll, look, as I said, we'll be like Thelma and Louise. We'll go off to the cliff together. <laughs> Unfortunately, right. Adam, you've got a lot more to lose than I do. So. <laughs> yeah, thanks, <laughs> thanks. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Adam. Thanks for having me.